This is a pre-recorded briefing, in which for security reasons of the highest importance has been known on board during the mission only by your HAL 9000 computer. I hope the two of you are not concerned about this. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And after a brief foray over into television, we've come back to movies. Yes, we have. Very, very important movie. Oh, so important. This is one of those, like, I knew it was coming. I knew we would do it at some point, and I'm excited that it's happening. Well, we had to do it now because, you know, it's, um, uh, we're getting into the holiday season, which means that uh, the year 2021 is winding down. So we have, we can't let this year go by without us observing the 20th anniversary of the year 2001. Open the podcast, Bay Door is Dead. <laughs> well, you remember how much fun 2001 was when, you know, we'd take you out of school for a vacation, jump on the Pan Am shuttle, <laughs> oh, goodness. get onto the uh, the orbital station, spend a couple of days at the Hilton, eat at the Howard Johnson's. I just remember a lot of Bionicles. Our 2001s <laughs> were very different. Now, we are talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes! Released in 1968. My goodness. This movie is one of those things that's always earlier than I think it is. Because I'll look at, like, the list of references within the like this sort of genre. And because it, it's more than just sci-fi. There's almost a sub-genre that this is part of. And I'll look to the reference list, and I'm always surprised to see this so early on it in terms of film. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. What? Oh, wow, this set the tone for all of those things. Okay. Because there's an entire subgenre of something's gone wrong in space. And I feel like this is very much one of the, like, a quintessential core of that, because so many other films and styles take from that later. My Some of my favorite video games, my one of my favorite tabletop RPG systems takes from this. And it's just like... You know, there's something about the atmosphere that this can build that everyone wants to come back to. That That is interesting that that's kind of how it fits. That's the category into which it fits for you. I recognize that. I tend to think of it as an icon of the philosophical slash psychedelic wave of science fiction. And yeah, it's got a segment in the middle that is of the something's gone terribly wrong in space genre. But knowing the kind of science fiction you like, it makes perfect sense to me that that's the part that you would recognize, oh, this is important and influential. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Mothership tabletop RPG system, and it directly cites this as a reference uh, when they're talking about its development. Uh, I'm a fan of games like Tacoma. And observation, where it's like all about you're on a space station <laughs> going around exploring. And it's it's visual aesthetic is very much inspired to some extent by the way this depicts space travel and the atmosphere 
that its depiction can give you all come into that. And I'm a fan of things like the, uh, the Expanse series of books. And there's something about its version of space travel, which I think has some roots back to this. I'm always excited because this is kind of one of those, like, for, for you, this is a continuation in a line that you'd already seen. For me, so many things had already called back that this is a, a, a starting point for an entire set. And I'm excited because that's a, a very different slice of media pop culture that we each got. You're right about that aspect in that this was, in some ways, the culmination of hard science fiction in cinema. And in some ways, the last great example of hard science fiction in cinema, partly because of what happened nine years later. This movie came out in 1968. And then Star Wars came out in 1977. And you'll be hard-pressed to find a movie in which space is silent after Star Wars, just because people are looking for something different in movies. Whereas 2001, it builds upon a, really a tradition of movies. You can go back to things like Destination Moon. It seems dated now, but it was uh, that was a movie made with very high-profile scientific advisors trying to get a depiction of a moon mission right. And 2001, with you know Arthur C. Clarke as the uh, uh, the writer behind it, and of course Stanley Kubrick as the director, it was trying to get it right and make it accurate. You wanna you wanna follow that tangent for just a moment? This is physical designer Ian noticing something that you've made reference to here. The aesthetic in Star Wars for the Evil Empire is dark black with gray and inset light panels you swap the black for white and you get white and gray with inset light panels which is all over the ships in <laughs> 2001 the empire's visual aesthetic is literally an evil color flipped version of some of the design aesthetics you see sometimes in sections of this sort of sci-fi that's a good point although you do get that that White with inset light panels is more of the Republic and Resistance Rebellion. You do. It's always a little dirtier and messier, yeah, right. though. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Uh, it's not um, NASA issue fresh out of the factory like no. we see here. <laughs> the Pan Am logo has been scrubbed off of the things by then. My goodness, <laughs> that was a. We're gonna get into this, but that the branding in this is very, very strong at the beginning in ways I didn't expect. And talking about the timing of this movie, when it came out, I find that very significant to me because this, I would definitely say, is is pretty high on the list. I, I talk about this a lot, but this is pretty high on the list of things that I saw when I was way too young. <laughs> and I was online with, with my brother Jim, your uncle, trying to figure out exactly when did we go see this. We went to the Franklin Movie Theater in our, our hometown. And the movie was released in 1968. I know I didn't see it then. I wasn't three years old when I saw it. Okay. But then it was re-released and sent around to theaters, because back then there wasn't home video. There weren't a million TV channels. Uh, things were important movies or popular movies were re-released every few years. 
This was re-released in 1974. Oh. And then it was re-released again in 1977, which was the year Star Wars and Close Encounters came out. And I am absolutely certain that I saw it well, well before I saw Star Wars. So I saw this in... 1974. Oh, no. When I was eight years old. Oh, no. And I was absolutely enthralled by it. I won't claim to have understood all of it, but I understood enough that it wasn't just look at these amazing visuals and look at the ape men. It set me up for a lot of the science fiction I read after that, including things like Dune that we talked about a few weeks ago including things like you know, Michael Moorcock's weirdness and a lot of Arthur Clarke. Yeah, but my goodness, yeah, okay. I'd run into this as reference point very early, around the age you're describing, but I didn't see it until you showed it to me in, like, when I was in high school. That was much better time for it. Like, <laughs> I was aware it existed, but I knew it would mess me up. And so you're saying it messed you up then. I can get it. And it not messed you up, but it, it, it got something into you probably earlier than you should have. It, it made an impact. Yeah. And apparently my parents were fine with it because I do want to mention something. I don't know that people pay attention to movie ratings as much as we used to back then. Did you notice the rating of this movie, the MPAA rating? No. This movie's rated G. G, that General sounds audiences. like a low rating for this. This has the same rating as Mary Poppins. Okay, of all of the things you might be able to reference as a comparison, the one where they jump into a chalk drawing and dance with penguins fits more in line with the ending of this film you than know, I expected. You've got a point. You've got a point there. Okay. Now that I've made that comparison, it explains a great Now I'm deal. just imagining her rummaging around her bag and just draw, drawing out a giant, perfect obsidian uh, rectangle with golden ratio proportions. So there's, there's there's some shocking stuff that happens in this movie. There are homicides. There are proto-human on proto-human violence. There's there's you know eight men uh, fighting each other over water resources. There, Did you side the silent murder of sleeping astronauts by a computer? The off-screen murder of another astronaut by a computer. There's the deactivation of a sentient computer. Uh, but there's no. And all of this is horrific, but there's no real violence that we see, with the exception of the, the ape stuff. Even the ape and, stuff, it's bloodless mm. violence. Yeah, we, they, they don't dwell on it. We don't get close-ups of it. And, of course, there's no sex in the movie. And then I think that was a much bigger concern for rating oh, yeah. determiners in the 70s than, uh, than violence necessarily still is, I think. I think that is a whole different topic. But... It it shows that this there, there's a lot of serious grown up stuff in this movie, but you know, yeah, it's rated G. It's okay for kids to see, and you know, I'm not saying it wasn't okay for me to see it. I'm just saying that it was impactful. This is uh, I always I always say it. This is there's always the multi movies in a movie thing, but this one really only has two and a a short story. Oh, uh, uh, that's interesting. I would have said more, but how, how, what's your breakdown like? My, uh, I guess four. I could break it down to four. There's the monkey story. There's the moon story. There's the space story. 
and then there's the wait what (laughs) and that's kind of the sequence of events i'd say that's about right and i could understand combining the the moon story with the space mission story because the moon story really is the prologue to the space mission and that's how i first was thinking about there neither makes sense without the other yeah because i mean the monkey story is brilliantly done it's not what you expect when you start up the film 2001 a space odyssey unless you know what you're coming into yeah the, the the title card we get is the dawn of man and we wind up seeing uh i'm not sure how how densely i need to summarize here but monkeys learn the basic principles of levers and start causing havoc <laughs> and of course spoilers for the movie like of course spoilers for the podcast movie. but yeah and it's um they don't just learn it, they're taught it by a giant featureless monolith that, that appears. appears. Of, yeah. Just like, hi, I'm here now. With, <laughs> the, with, with, with a wonderfully bit of ambiguously diegetic uh, soundtrack is, is the weird choral humming something that the eight men are hearing, or is that just on the soundtrack like the music is for our benefit? This is a, this is a wonderful example of how audio is important to visuals. Because the se- the scene with this growing building noise is one thing. You take the exact same scene and add a cartoon boop sound effect when it jump cuts to the monolith is there, and it's funny as anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, the audio is very important to this scene. Oh, I wonder if it could have had the ringing, whistling ping. Exactly. Like from, uh... Uh, from Lost in Space. Just imagine, like, <laughs> the, this putting that right where the jump cut is, and you'll you'll defuse the entire film. <laughs> the entire running time will go flat. It's brilliant. Yeah, these these ape, these proto-human ape men are are struggling for survival, and this thing shows up, and the next thing you know, they know how to use tools and the first tool they use as a weapon against the other tribe of proto-human ape men yeah Uh, yeah, because because they they notice this thing they're all really scared but first one touches it and gets really excited when he does and then everyone comes over and they're just all like gotta touch the rock must touch rock and then it just immediately cuts to them like going about their business like nothing happened but we watch them shift how they're standing a little and start pondering things and picking up things and testing it i like the way that that seemed to present that yes this thing came and planted a seed but it didn't start from nothing it planted a seed in fertile ground these creatures these people were already curious enough to examine it and touch it not run away from it and therefore it it didn't just like bam suddenly here's a tool set it's Sometime after that, they begin to notice things because they're smart and curious. Exactly. It's subtle, and that's the most terrifying thing, because a subtle influence like that that is so obvious somehow at the same time gives you this tension because you know something's happening, but you're not completely aware of what. Mm -hmm. It, It... I find that a little bit eerie because I certainly know that I will sometimes have ideas, um, you know, something I want to write, something I want to do, and this new approach to it will come to mind in a way that makes me almost think, you know, where did that come from? I mean, I know it's something that I figured out somewhere, or I noticed somewhere, and now I'm referencing it, 
But it is that eerie. Is something teaching me things and I don't know? Yeah. I think all people tend to have a little bit of that at some point in their lives. And this is, yeah, what if our entire species was jump-started by that kind of effect? And the the transition from monkey story into space story is one of the best scenes, I think. That's one of those shots that it almost looks like a parody because it has been parodied and replicated so many times, but you watch it in context, and it it says so much in that one shot. It it is the fastest of all of human civilization I've seen. And in close second place is uh history of the world, I guess, by Bill Wirtz. <laughs> but it's just like in one moment, monkey hits thing with raw uh, hits uh hits bone with other bone, bone flies up into the air, monkey throws bone up to f- chase it, and then jump cut to from bone in air to spaceship in space. Right. The flying Bone Club is now a uh, a spaceship, and that says so much. Yes, these are the same things. It's a question of time and scale. Mm-hmm. One leads to the other. We jump immediately from a tool of 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 a of a creature that is sentient enough to use it to a tool of a creature sentient enough to use it. Uh-huh. Boom. And each is the you can predict as the foundation of a civilization. Exactly. And that leads into the, the this wonderful dialogue-free sequence of spaceflight. Exactly, which is like it's it, it's appointed like traditional airline setup because it's Pan Am branded and everything. I'm intrigued by the inset seats instead of at level with the walkway, but that's kind yeah, of a cool. Interesting setup. bits of design. Interesting yeah. bits of design. Nice zero-G work with a pen floating having been dropped. Something's definitely weird because it's a commercial flight look, which is something people would probably recognize to some extent, but it's empty except for one passenger, which is eerie. And they never bother explaining that. Is this a special chartered flight because of the important mission we later learn this this guy is on? Or is spaceflight becoming routine? Does Pan Am have space shuttles like this and its regular flights? But... They're still very costly, and not a lot of people have reason to go to space, so they're not occupied yet. I like the fact that that is, um, uh, that that's left ambiguous. I like the fact that we f- see the that the space station that this Pan Am shuttle is uh, is approaching is still under construction. It is not complete. All the amazing things that we are seeing are just the beginning. Mm-hmm. I like the, all, all that that implies. I'm also fascinated to see all the bits and pieces that are like, I've seen this in other things now, but I've watched them like fix or modify one aspect. Like space flight, the difference between zero G and how you move around it and all of that. And I'm interested to see all the design elements that I've seen other pieces of media run with from this, but they've changed bits of it as it's been adapted over time and it's been referenced their version of pan am all of the zero g stuff all of this makes sense i've seen that in other things the padding on walls you wouldn't expect because you don't know what you'll run into when you're floating things like that we see but they're using velcro shoes and all the other things i i read or see use magnets 
because it's like design iteration in concept before you even get to execution. And it's fun to see this. What almost feels prototype like to me, which might change how I think about this setup when I'm seeing it. It definitely read as early days of space of, of this sort of space travel. The place is, is not finished. They're using this Velcro system. It doesn't feel complete to me because my reference of this type of sci-fi has other design elements that I think are later on in its development, which means this feels early to me. And so it's intriguing to hear you say like, there's a question there because I never questioned it. I just immediately had an assumption. You're right. And and there is a lot to show that this is early days, not just the fact that things are under construction. The very fact that they're using shoes to stick themselves to the floor and they're using seats of, of the kind that they are, are using. Looking back at that from, you know, the year 2021, I'm thinking, why are they bothering to have to stick themselves to the floor all the time? Why are they walking around? You watch people who spend time in space in the ISS and other things. If they're going to be in zero gravity, they'll make use of that. And they'll be handholds and they'll pull themselves around in zero G. They won't fight against it by attempting to walk down an aisle. And yet, you think about, you see pictures of the early days of commercial air travel. What did the insides of these uh, uh, airplanes tend to look like? Passenger trains. Good point. They were trying to replicate the previous advance. And you look at old passenger trains, they were the passenger cars were built by coachmakers. They're always trying to adapt the experience of a prior innovation to the next one until you realize what makes it different and how to work with that. So it makes sense that if this is the very dawn of commercial spaceflight for passengers, yeah, the mo best model is going to be um, commercial jet traffic. And maybe later on they'll realize, you know, we don't have to walk around and sit in seats that would be appropriate for an airplane. Yeah. Or if we need to be able to root ourselves in place, if we're in a metal box, use magnets. It makes <laughs> sense. That, absolutely. That's the sort of thing that they'll figure out later. So yeah. it's interesting to see that because my reference point has that later. And I, you're, it definitely what you're saying makes it like fits with all of that. So And, and Kubrick and Clark definitely thought about a lot of these things. Oh, yeah. These, these were not accidental necessarily. And, um, and talk about Kubrick putting careful shots in places like this is framing things to tell you stuff. No dialogue necessary. You get what's going on from what's in the shot alone. And today, I think you'd have a lot more pushback about how long that sequence is with no dialogue. It doesn't have to be that long purely for the sake of the story. But I, for one, would not want to shorten that a bit. Oh, no. It, it is just so much fun to watch, so much fun to see this recreated. And this is where, you know, seeing this in 1974 as an eight-year-old, it's like, oh. this is what the world in which I will be a grown-up is going to be like. <laughs> that is so cool. It looks real. I totally believe it. Looks like an airport, but it's in space. That was just was so inspiring. Oh, Yeah. And of course, the, the way music is used with the Blue Danube uh, waltz is part of this. Um, but again, it almost looks like a parody because it's been replicated and parodied so much, but it was, 
it was genius putting all of this together and showing the the ballet of physics that is spaceflight. Oh, absolutely. And then once you get onto the station and you start getting bits of dialogue, there's still enough downtime and establishing shots to keep that sort of wonder and apprehension combination going throughout. They don't let that up. Yes, it really starts to seem like a spy story. Mm-hmm. Because we, who we've been following on his journey to this uh, space station is Dr. Haywood Floyd from the National Council on Astronautics. And apparently he's on his way to the moon because something is happening on the moon. And the Russian colleagues with whom he's friendly, he talks with them a bit, but he's not going to let slip anything about what's happening on the moon. So we don't learn what's happening there, just that it's important enough to to have a bigwig take a special flight from uh, from Earth to get there. Oh, yeah. Make a, make a transfer at this station and then head off to the moon directly. Something's going down. Uh, we do see him stop by the, uh, the phone booth to be able to put a FaceTime vid call in, which just felt interesting and wild. Yeah, so not only do we have um, Pan Am still in operation and running uh, space shuttles, we also have a Bell telephone, the Bell system still up and running and up. handling video calls from orbit to Earth. There's just, that's one of those, like, this, it, it, it dates this movie, but it also simultaneously establishes this movie very well, because the limits that it has on its tech are important. And this was certainly the first thing that I ever saw that had these recognizable trademarks of the real world in the future. It made the future seem like such a real place, with Pan Am and Bell Telephone and Howard Johnson's and a Hilton Hotel. And yeah, very believable that there would be these things. I mean, why not? People need a place to have breakfast at uh, uh, on the space station. Why wouldn't it be a Howard Johnson's? Exactly. It just makes sense. And then we have um, a whole second spaceflight sequence following Haywood Floyd on his ship from the space station to the uh, the U.S. moon base, where he gives a TED talk, and by TED Talk, I'm betting one of the guys in the room was named Ted as they discuss very important things. Because, turns out, they've found a giant rock on the moon. Not a surprise. A giant, rectilinear, black, monolith rock. Oh, buried in a crater. Long before the dawn of humanity. So it's the same thing that we saw show up in the savannah at the dawn of man but this one has been put on the moon and buried as if it was a, a a timing device. You know, this is going to be important when this species is able to A, get to the moon, and B, function on the moon well enough to find and excavate this. And apparently the thing's solar activated, because after having a big discussion and then uh, going out to see the thing, the moment the light hits the newly uncovered rock, it just decides to blast them with some sort of sound. <laughs> That's interesting. I, You're right that the way it's shot, it probably was the fact that it was now exposed to sunlight. And of course, well, the moon they, has a 28-day you know, rotation. They give us this very, very clear, like, the light hitting it at, like as it's coming over. They're taking this picture right as the light's coming over it. And we get this reflection and... Then the noise hits at the same time. 
That makes a lot of sense. When I first saw this, I had this idea that it it somehow sensed when there were enough people around it. Mm. It had to be a gathering of sentient beings, not just a one-off. A tribe of them? Yeah. Very, very, uh, and seeing these, astro- these scientists in their, uh, their spacesuits on the moon gathered around this and taking pictures of it and looking at it and approaching it, it does look and feel very much like the tribe of, of uh, proto-humans doing this in the first sequence. But you're probably right. It was the, the way they shot it. They're implying the sun was doing something to it. And again, that's kind of a good trigger. When this is uncovered and exposed to solar radiation, it's going to turn on and send some kind of signal. Mm-hmm. And then we imme- almost immediately, I think, from there, cut to the next mission, like months later. Right. 18 months later, approaching Jupiter is Discovery. And apparently this is a mission that had been planned, but was changed and maybe accelerated in light of this information. Because apparently whatever signal this monolith on the moon sent, it sent it to the vicinity of Jupiter. Ah, Jupiter. Giant, large, ominous, important to most sci-fi things for because of those other factors, Jupiter. So, maybe the whole point of this is that the, the solar system is an escape room. And you've <laughs> got to follow the clues. Here's a clue. Start using tools. Once you've started using tools and done that enough to build spaceships, go to the moon and dig this up. Once you've dug this up, it's going to send a signal. Follow the signal and you'll get to the next clue. This fits too well. This fits too well in the mind. Right down, <laughs> right down to the final puzzle being an obtuse thing that you usually don't succeed at solving at first. <laughs> I love that answer. Thank you. Oh, I'm imagining good. the attendant now just kind of looking at the clock and saying, you know, they've only got another 300,000 years on their time, or they're going to have to pay extra. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, heading for this next clue, following the direction of the uh, the radio signal, uh, is is the crew of the Discovery, it, which includes three scientists who are frozen. They're in hibernation. Cold, yeah, it's cold sleep. But we've also got Bowman and Poole, the ah. astronauts who are kind of running things, and Hal Nine Thousand. Ah, the most. The most famous computer, HAL 9000. An artificially sentient uh, computer, one of the the few 9000 series computers from the HAL plant, which is now built into Discovery and is um, kind of running the whole ship and is uh, a sixth member of the crew, as one of the the astronauts describes him on a, a TV interview that he gives. That's something else that uh, I see. They make extensive use for exposition of like news reports and TV interviews that the uh, the astronauts have given. And usually in a movie, that seems like a forced kind of a trick. But for some reason, it it works in this. Maybe it was one of the earliest times I saw it. Maybe it's just that, yeah, this would be extremely newsworthy. There's something about a a story in which communication is actually a plot point. Keeping information like that diegetic in communicated things is great. 
Because it's not something pausing to tell the audience, it's something everyone got told, and we are part of everyone. Or, not everyone got told, and we are part of possibly not everyone. <laughs> and that's important. Yeah, it, it avoids the as-you-know Bob by making it, have him, making it make sense for these characters to tell this stuff to someone, in, in this case, a, a reporter. Side note, I can't think of the phrase, as you know, Bob, not being read out in Hal's voice, I must say. There's something about the cold <laughs> precision of it, where, like, the delivery on Hal is just this this chilling, perfect thing. It It is... It is somehow unnerving, but in a way that that feels like someone tried desperately to make this less unnerving and only got this far before it was pushed would put out on release. And I love it. You're right. That's Douglas Rain as the voice of Hal Nine Thousand, and that's a cast member in this movie who I think is often overlooked. I mean, we've got Keir Delay as uh, David Bowman, and we've got Gary Lockwood as Frank Poole. Now, Keir DeLay had been in a number of uh, of movies before this. He was probably best known for a, mo- a movie version of David and Lisa. And uh, Gary Lockwood, he did mostly a lot of TV stuff. He was in a pilot for a science fiction TV series in like 1966. He wasn't in the rest of the series when it was picked up, but he had a big role in the pilot. But Douglas Rain as Hal adds so much to this movie. Oh, absolutely. Hal, Hal is the progenitor of so many other robot characters and AI characters throughout all of media. I mean, you don't get Gladys from uh, uh, Portal if you didn't have Hal. Exactly. It, it, there, there is this, you know, this, this friendly coldness. It's just perfectly done. <laughs> And without changing his tone, without changing anything about the way Hal speaks, as the story progresses, it goes from benevolent and placid to cold and sinister. And it's a beautiful change to see he, the, the way that it's constructed. Hal could, t- could tell you that your coffee has gone cold. And it would sound at first like a friendly reminder, and then later in the same film, the same exact line delivered the same way would sound threatening. And, y- and it's brilliant. <laughs> so Poole and Bowman and Hal and these other three scientists who are, are whose jobs will begin once they get to Jupiter, they're on this mission to Jupiter, but... At the last minute, some things about this mission were changed, and certain things were kept top secret. There were things that Poole and Bowman were not necessarily informed of. Unusually, the three scientists who were in uh, hibernation were put into hibernation before the start of the mission and brought onto the ship already in hibernation. All kinds of weird secrecy happening around this, this mission. And then Hal starts to go a little weird. Yeah. Before that even happens, there's wonderful establishing scenes, like the the jogging around the circular room to give you the entire thing. The cinematography to set up this environment is so perfectly done. Oh, it's it's more beautiful physics and tech spectacle. 
Mm-hmm. I love it. There's something about the, like, they can do a shot where you see the table, but seeing the fact that the table is curved with the wall that it's built on <laughs> when he jogs along just messes with my mind in the best way. And it does an interesting job of establishing scale, too, because we saw something similar in the space station where we followed um, Haywood Floyd. And you know, the, the floors were curved, but the space station was big. So you had to kind of look ahead a little bit to notice, oh, I'm from my current perspective, it looks like I'd be walking upward if I keep going. But the way, you know, the artificial gravity works from the spin, it never feels like you're going up. Discovery, it's, um, its rotating artificial gravity ring is much smaller. So it's still, even though you've got gravity everywhere, pushing outward, or simulated gravity, it's got to feel very different. It's psychologically very different. It's, it's claustrophobic in yeah. just the right ways. And almost doc, a cabinet of Dr. Caligari sort of twisted geometry that's going to mess with your mind. So yeah. it does a little bit as a, a movie viewer. And the fact that they give us this establishment of them all working together fine, Hal being nice, playing chess with them and everything else, as they're establishing that, and as the the weird claustrophobic disconcerting environment aspects get to you is when Hal starts going. And so it's like, you start feeling unnerved right as Hal starts going wrong, which means you relate in some weird way because you're already distraught and now the thing is distressing. And what happens with Hal is it is established as an absolute incontrovertible known fact at the beginning of this sequence, no 9000 series computer has ever made an error. It's never made an error in data input, in computation, in data reporting. They've simply never made an error. Anytime when it's looked as if maybe the 9000 has made an error, it was human error involved. And Hal starts reporting flaws in the ship. Specifically, it reports a flaw in a like a communications uh, module. And they go out and swap that out for a new one. They find nothing wrong with the old one that Hal said had a flaw. Huh. And they start to worry. Is, is Hal making mistakes? And... And it's interesting. I think that if a human crew member had misdiagnosed something, they would have said, oh, he wasn't on top of his game. Let's have his stuff double-checked. It seems much more serious to them to find that maybe this HAL 9000 has made a mistake. I gotta say, for the, for the slow, methodical pace of the movie up to this point, it jumps really fast once HAL starts going wrong. Once there's a mistake from Hal, like the the speed at which they go from Hal made a mistake to we should unplug him and and go manual because we can't trust him is really really quick. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, oh, the doctor diagnosed my sprained ankle. He did. Should we kill him? <laughs> it is wild. <laughs> but but they are concerned because Hal. A, so much of this mission relies upon the fact that the Hals have never made a mistake. And he's B, he's running everything about the ship. And uh, and the fact that he's running everything about the ship becomes very important because he decides 
nah, I think I need to get all these humans out of the way. Yeah, I got, and, and immediately what he does is he sets up a situation where both of them get out of the ship one way or another. And so he can kind of take over and do what he wants. But the way he get, he uh, kills off Poole is just really, really harsh. And we don't, we don't see it happen. We see it's set up and we see it's immediate aftermath. And he apparently just took over the, the pod and knocked Poole around with the claws or pulled out his, his air hose. Oh, wait, wait a minute. We've got a bunch of people who very quickly turn on someone else in space and accuse them of, uh, of needing to be gotten rid of. And they turn it around and we see one of the accusers floating lifelessly through the void. Pardon me dating this show and episode right now, but uh, Poole was not the imposter. It is absolutely <laughs> an Among Us moment. And Hal completely flips that button press and that reporting. He was just there at the antenna trying to connect the wires. <laughs> Come on. Can you really say you saw Hal vent if Hal, in fact, is the vents? <laughs> but yeah, Poole gets killed, and Bowman goes after him in one of the pods. And it's, it's Bowman uh, coming back with Poole's body in the little gripper claws of the pod that gets you the classic begging to open the doors moment. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. But meanwhile, uh, Hal has killed off all of the frozen scientists by de-thawing them improperly, I think, or something like that. <laughs> I don't think like that. I, it was not very clear. We just get a lot of error messages on screens and then a lot of lines going flat. Yeah, suddenly all their vital signs are going red. Exactly. So he's done something bad here. And just as quickly as the maybe we should kill Hal is the, okay, Put Poole's floating body here, go over to the side axis panel, pop it open with my pod, crawl in in my spacesuit, and kill and cut off Hal by taking out all the machine parts. Boom. It's he, he moves to, okay, we're going with the kill you method really quickly as well. And he was very prepared to do this. It's a little fast at this point, story wise. Yeah, but given the fact that. Uh, he's already committed four homicides and Very controls everything. It's kind of some nautical justice needed there, I think. Absolutely. I'm just distraught, distraught by how fast Bowman knew what to do to do this. If the yeah. idea is you don't need to ever turn off Hal, the Hal won't make a mistake. You, he seemed way more prepared to turn off the Hal. And specifically to disconnect his higher consciousness functions without interfering with the parts that are needed to keep the ship running. If they'd said, like, Bowman was the computer uh, expert, which is why he was still up to help maintain the systems, and he was the one who helped install Hal into the ship earlier, I would understand. But they don't give you that much establishment in that sense. Or he had a big red binder to carry with him in there that oh yeah, they suggested. If the impossible event that the Hal goes wrong happens, here's what to do. Yeah, there's a remarkable lack of reference texts. <laughs> well, Hal has all those on file, so. <laughs> Excuse me, Hal. Please pull up the file on how to disconnect you. It I kind of is what they almost do. Sure, Dave, if I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th this also leads to the classic Daisy 
scene. Yes. Yeah, and Hal starts to see his his life flash before his monocular sensors. eye. Yeah. yeah. But then we get to that final movie in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because right at the end, Hal decides to release to Bowman the video that was supposed to be played when everyone was woken up right near Jupiter. And the answer is, there's another monolith out by Jupiter. We were sending you to that because that's what received all the transmissions that the other things sent. And when we we cut away to see like this thing flying around Jupiter and we don't see the object. We see the giant void of stars that this black monolith is blotting out as it floats past. Very wonderful and I think kind of bold decisions to to make the monolith so subtle in these frames and but it's so dramatic when you notice what's there and this whole section is called jupiter and beyond the infinite (laughs) and again we get this extended space scene with no dialogue of things floating around and we see jupiter and its its moons i i can't see that sequence though that that scene without thinking about i had a film professor in college who knew a lot about movies, didn't know a lot about much else, and that includes the structure of the solar system. And he saw this as this wild warping of reality in the way Kubrick chose to show Jupiter and the sun and all the planets lined up, even though the planets aren't that close to one another. And I'm sitting here watching it for this third or fourth time, and his in his class and hearing him talk about this and thinking that's Jupiter and Jupiter's moons. And there are a lot of them. This is not the solar system lumped artificially together. It's the Jovian system professor. I didn't say that I had learned by that time. Some (laughs) things are not worth arguing with professors about. Oh, that just hurts though. Yeah. It was painful. But it's a great shot of Jupiter and many of its moons and the monolith. Yeah, which is just kind of hanging out like it's another one of its moons. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I'm part of the Jovian system now. Just waiting, and it's probably been there for for a million years. Oh yeah, just jovial times at the Jovian. (laughs) But Bowman flies his little pod, I think, up to it. Yep. And the movie disintegrates brilliantly. (laughs) because he doesn't just fly up to it he kind of flies through it yeah it's it is some kind of gate oh and that same professor explained to us that the reason anybody went to see this in 1968 was to take a lot of drugs and watch the last few minutes of the movie (laughs) okay if you insist now we know what he did (laughs) yeah But I could I could understand what he means in that it is this wild light show, really interesting photographic um, effects, uh, especially for its time. Oh yeah, uh, real. I I find that really compelling and enthralling. I find it really compelling and enthralling for about two thirds of the light show's time frame, and the last third, I don't know, it grates on me. The last third is when it's kind of just color change shots of terrain, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, that could have been shorter because there is really a progression in these. It goes from star fields to 
indeterminate weirdness in which scale is totally incomprehensible to what appears like it might be extremely alien technology to what looks like a really weird alien planet. So it is a sense I have journeyed somewhere, not just had a weird experience. Yeah, maybe I'm just spoiled for much better color filters nowadays. But there's something that needs to be, like, it's just not quite getting me with the color shifted. Yeah, that that could have been shorter, that last part. Okay, mm-hmm. he's arrived somewhere. Let's let's move on. And then we get the the hotel room. <laughs> I guess because we get we get him like arriving in a place with his pod and he keeps having these little moments of scenes but he then notices himself somewhere else in the room older and then we're that version of him and he kind of goes through an entire like the rest of his life in this little room bouncing from spot to spot jumping forward through his life until he hits the end of it where he's dying in bed. Yeah, I, I, I find that really, really interesting. Oh, yeah. And in that he will see someone across the room. He'll realize, oh, that's me. And then he'll be in the point of view of the person he just saw. And yeah, that whole sequence is, it's more interesting to me and more moving to me. Many decades uh, older than when I first saw it, because in some ways that is a poetic depiction about what getting older is like. Like suddenly you are yourself, but you're someone else in a different place with different characteristics. And like, how did that happen all of a sudden? And oh, what's that like? What do you mean? What's that like? That's me. It's, it's very interesting to watch that. Yeah. it's a it's interesting that after getting us used to having all this having dialogue and having characters talking and such they kind of return back to this silent film styling it was doing early on. Yeah, no dialogue, no one to talk with. Nope. Just things happening and meaning things. And when he finally gets to the end of human life, the monolith's back again. At the end of the be- at the foot of the bed. And then I don't know what to think of this last bit. Well, he he's the astronaut who sees an older man and then becomes the older man. He is the older man who sees an ancient man on the verge of death, and then he is the ancient man on the verge of death. The ancient man on the verge of death sees the monolith and then becomes a star baby. Star baby. Star child. A what looks sort of like a stylized human baby or, you know, just prior to birth in some kind of a ovoid cocoon who shows up in the hotel room and then floats out into space and returns to Earth. Absolutely. That, I mean, oh, there's things about this that just like. Like, I never know what to think about this, but I know it's influenced a lot. I mean, I'm absolutely certain that the Pokemon Mew having, like, circular force field barriers around it all the time and looking, while it looks vaguely fetal in some of its forms, is kind of Star Child-like. And I'm like, (laughs) why is this a reference? Why is this so 
This is poignant, but I never understand what to think here. (laughs) It keeps popping up again. What it really, it seems to me that what the movie is really working really hard to do is to pull you along into the literalness of this. Because everything else, as amazing and, and far out as it is, is still very literal. Yeah. Ape men are taught how to use tools. That kicks off human civilization until humans are spacefaring. They find uh, another monolith, which leads them out to Jupiter. They go to Jupiter. All of this very concrete, very literal so far. Go to Jupiter, fly into a monolith, get taken somewhere else where this strange psychedelic experience happens, and then becomes another next step in the species. I get I get what you're saying. It it always seemed like it was an ending that didn't it was never quite fulfilling to me, but I guess the point is that it's the story of a new beginning of something. Right. Not an end to a a narrative in that sense. Everything else in the movie was essentially human beings like us or our predecessors, which are inherently comprehensible to us, us being us. What is next is not necessarily comprehensible. Okay. We, part of a spacefaring civilization, can understand the ape men. The ape men could not have understood the spacefaring civilization. Okay, I'm I'm liking that. I honestly came into this uh, this episode without a clear idea as to what I thought of the ending, and I'm kind of building one now. I'm I like that. I like that a lot. Now, my explanation is simply. It's incomprehensible, and here's why. But that that's works. not much of an explanation. That, that, that gives me something. At okay. least, like, I'm not trying to question it as much then. That's actually good. It's certainly an ending to think about. Absolutely. Maybe that's the good point to be able to transition into our normal ending for the podcast episode. I guess so. I mean, this is one of those movies I could keep talking about for oh, quite yeah. some time. I, I probably will once we're no longer recording. Oh, absolutely. This is... This is an entire, there are are plenty of more discussions about, and you could keep going. But I guess we do have to make some decisions, don't we? Yep. Well, it's a movie, screen or no screen. Screen it. Absolutely. Absolutely screen it. it. And this is such a tone-setting film as well. This fits in both the actively watch and the the put-it-on-in-the-background style. It works for either one, I think. I agree. I would say... Do not put it on in the background until after you have actively watched it, at least once, maybe twice. Yes. Once that's happened, then you can kind of use it as, because it's, even without the story, there are amazing visuals. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can use it as background, you could use it as an environment. So yeah, screen, absolutely. Oh yeah. Our second question, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Our normal, our normal subcategory from there. I wasn't as certain when I first started this episode, but I think after realizing that part of it is that incomprehensibility you're describing, part of it is that start of a new story, there's something compelling to the idea about, I mean, I don't think you need to reboot this. I think that 2001 is great at it, and there's so many other things that are doing this sort of style and story elsewhere, to some extent, that a reboot isn't necessary there's other things carrying the torch for it in that sense. Right. The, this movie made by some, by people other than Kubrick and, and Arthur Clarke 
wouldn't be this movie? Anybody good enough to even attempt to reboot this will be good enough that I'd rather see the original stuff that they would do. I don't want to see them redo a Kubrick movie. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm with you. Let's just rule out reboot. But it's the, so it's the rest in peace. Let this movie stand on its own and be what it is. Or another story in the same continuity. I'm, I kind of am not leaning towards revival then. I mean, I, I don't want to go that way. If if the point is we're not going to understand it, then continuing the story and trying to make it understandable is just going to. I don't know if I don't know. I don't think that would work as well. I'm not I'm not for that. So I'm going to say rest in peace. Yeah, I considering this movie, I would also say rest in peace. Okay. So we'll be back in uh, in two weeks with uh, with talk about another science fiction movie. Oh no! But uh, until then, Ian, where can people find you? Oh, I can be found online as Item Crafting on Twitter, as Item Crafting Live on Twitch, or at itemcrafting.com. And you can find me uh, at most places as by Matthew Porter. So go to bymatthewporter.com, uh, by Matthew Porter on uh, Twitter. And uh, you can find the podcast itself at immproject.com. You can also find us as immpcast on Twitter. And if you go to that uh, website, immproject.com, you'll find all of our back episodes. And you will find uh, links to our Discord, links to our uh, contact page. Uh, We'd love to hear from you there. What did you think of this movie? What's your thoughts about uh, Revive, Reboot, or uh, Rest in Peace? And you'll find links to our shop if you like t-shirts, coffee mugs, other fun things, and a link to our Patreon. We thank uh, uh, very much anybody who's able to support us there and help keep the podcast going. And if you uh, do uh, support us on Patreon, you'll get additional uh, audio content each month. So... Thanks very much for downloading. Thanks very much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.